0: Welcome to Douglas Wilson's "The Podcast," presented by Canon Press. Yes, God. God turn. Welcome to the podcast. I am Douglas Wilson. This is episode 2:35. 2.35 of the podcast. Not just any podcast, but the podcast. I want to talk a little bit today about, uh, uh, not talk, well, I'm, I'm going to talk, but I'd like to speculate a little bit today in a category that might be called palace intrigues, palace intrigues. This is not the normal uh, political uh, sort of thing. It has to do with politics, but it's not the normal political process. I'm not going to be talking about elections primarily, or voters primarily, or acts of Congress primarily, although what I'm going to talk about is going to affect all these uh, folks. I'm uh, I'm talking about the obviously impaired state of the president. Uh, Joe Biden is clearly not running on all cylinders. He's clearly not uh, in a healthy spot. And it's the kind of thing where it's It'd be ridiculous uh, to deny it. Um, he's mentally impaired. There's not. It's not all healthy. It's not all good. There. You couple this with the fact that uh, the vice president, uh, Vice President Harris, is herself capable of some very interesting word salads, and uh, and is preeminently unlikable, and consequently is uh, not a. Uh, charismatic rallying point. So, we've got an impaired president and a drag uh, for the uh, uh, vice president, and we've got midterm elections coming up, and what are the Democrats to do? Now, uh, the reason I want to talk about palace intrigue is it seems to me that the, um, the site is being prepared for a removal of President Biden. And the what I'm pointing to here is the um, the so-called laptop from hell, the uh, the hunter, the the infamous Hunter Biden laptop, was serenely ignored through the election. The discussion of it was shut down, and all of a sudden, it has traction. All of a sudden, the laptop is uh, talked about in uh, respectable circles and what you could get yourself uh, censored for two years ago, trying to talk about this laptop during the election, what you could find yourself um, relegated as a conspiracy theorist for thinking there was something to do it, it's now, okay, yeah, mainstream outlets are acknowledging that the laptop is for real. It's a real thing. Okay, the only reason I figure that is happening is that some, a signal has gone out that it's okay to talk about? You're not going to, um, you're not going to be pouring cold water into anybody's soup if you talk about this now, and so an all clear has been sounded. Now, why has an all clear been sounded to uh, talk about a laptop that implicates the president in all kinds of dirty deals, whether with China or Ukraine or whatever? Why, why, what's going on? Well, it seems that. There's a recognition that the president at the top of the ticket is a major liability, and so it's necessary to get rid of him. But if they got rid of the president and we wound up with uh, President Kamala Harris, that that really would be out of the frying pan into the fire. You'd be dealing with someone who is at least somewhat likable and inconsequential to someone who's manifestly unlikable and inconsequential, and that would be a bad move. To To move from Biden to Harris would be a bad move. The problem is, how do you remove the president? If the president were removed on the basis of uh, not being mentally fit, then the, the vice president takes over. If the vice president doesn't take over, if they take out the president and the vice president at the same time, then we get Nancy Pelosi. The third in line, the third in the line of succession, is the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Now, just to make all of this more festive, as if it needed to be more festive, we have midterms coming up. The midterms are in November, and all the indicating signs, all the early indication signs, are that it's going to be a very bad election for the Democrats. Now, the way the national election went, the way the 2020 election went, it was basically the electoral college system meant that certain, if there there were dirty deeds, the dirty deeds only had to go down in about six states and in certain parts of those states so that you didn't have to have a massive uh, fraud machine all across the country. So the um, midterms for the for the congressional seats are going to be district by district and it is much more likely that those the, these upcoming elections are going to be very fair and square right well the indications are that it's going to be a bloodbath that from a democratic perspective it's going to be a bloodbath the chances are good and i'd say in the house the chances are excellent that the democrats lose control of the house of representatives and I think the chances are really pretty good that they lose control of the Senate. So that puts a stopwatch on this, the palace intrigues about what the Democrats are going to do about their president and their vice vice president. That puts sort of a hard stopwatch on the whole thing, does it not? Whatever happens has to happen over the next few months. Because we have, as I'm recording this, it's April, so six months until the midterms. if the Republicans take the House and the Senate, and we still have President Biden and Kamala Harris, what does that mean? Well, that means if the Republicans control the House of Representatives, it's possible for the president to be impeached, and it is possible for the vice president to be impeached. And if the Republicans take the Senate, then the Senate, they are the ones who would hold the trial. So the, the impeached president would be tried in the Senate, and the Republicans would control that process. Okay. Now, here's the clown nose on, the whole, on all the festivities, here's the clown nose. The third in line, if, if the Republicans take the House, then that means whoever they elect as the Speaker of the House is then third in line, uh, the third in line for the succession to the presidency. And if the uh, laptop has been let loose and all the dirty deals that have been going down with China and Ukraine are public knowledge by that time, and the president is impeached for that, then you've got a very interesting situation. Who would who would the Republicans put in as the number three, right? So there you go. Uh, if the Democrats are going to have to move, they're gonna to have to move pretty soon. So, continuing on with episode 235 in the podcast, we continue on with our course of study, looking at various ways that sins are described in the New Testament. We are calling this course Hamartiology, Hamartiology 101. So, our next word is another hop meaning that it only occurs one time. It only occurs once. The word is ekstrefo, ekstrefo, E K S T R E. PHO extrafo and it means subvert and here's the place where that word occurs Titus 3:11 knowing that he that is such is subverted there's our word knowing that knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself the sin here is a doctrinal sin it's an intellectual sin paul is telling titus to reject someone who's a heretic reject someone who is a heretic After an admonition or two. So warn him, admonish him once or twice, and then have nothing to do with him. Now, the original use of the word heretic did not refer to the content of the opinion per se, but rather to the divisive or sectarian way of holding to a view. By the second century, a heretic was someone who held to doctrines X, Y, Z. It originally began as a, a term for a schismatic or someone who, held to these views in a divisive way. Uh, The context of this warning lends credence to this understanding that it had uh, more of an application to the sectarian mentality, in that Paul had just finished warning Titus about stupid questions along with unprofitable and vain controversies. We should think about it this way. A certain kind of tumultuous personality positively needs a divisive doctrine in order to make a name for himself so one of the, the the second century understanding of heretic unfolds naturally out of the first century understanding of a divisive or a sectarian or a quarrelsome man if you are a quarrelsome man you need to have doctrines to quarrel about right and so that's where uh, that's where heresies arose God. Continuing on with the podcast, episode 235. Uh, the book I'd like to review this go round is *The Reformed Pastor* by Richard Baxter. *The Reformed Pastor* by Richard Baxter. So I've read this. Uh, I've read this book twice actually. The first time was decades ago, long time ago, and it was well before I was reformed myself. I remember being impressed by it. I, you know, that this guy is a serious pastor. Impressed by it. Liked it. Uh, it was a good book. And I just recently um, uh, went through it again uh, because I'm going to be writing the uh, foreword to a, uh, a Canon Press re-release of the book. So I went through it again. Now, Richard Baxter was a, an outstanding personality in a century of outstanding personalities. He was, he was the quintessential Puritan pastor, but he was also kind of a handful. So he was, um, when it came to public controversies, he was, you know, he was of the party of peace. But he was kind of um, bumptious, you might say. I don't want to say uh, irascible, like he was mean-spirited or anything. But he was a very forthright kind of person. He, He said what he thought, basically. And some people had a hard time getting along with him because he said what he thought. He had a hard time getting along with peers. And the seventeenth century in england there were a number there were a number of people who had Baxter's horsepower who were who could stay even with him when it came to these uh, sorts of things uh and so baxter was Baxter was a handful he he was disruptive and bumptious in some of his proposals although his proposals and his doctrines that he would develop were in in the interests of um uh removing obstacles and that sort of thing he he was he was of the party of peace when it came to what he wanted to see happen but his personality was such that it didn't always his personality personality didn't always help at the same time having said that when it came to his pastoral gifts and his ability to analyze cases of conscience he was unparalleled he was an amazing pastor now the reform pastor is a book that is designed to motivate Puritan pastors to take up the challenge of catechizing their flock, of catechizing their people, teaching them the doctrines of God, teaching them the ways of God, and getting them established in the faith. Now, Baxter's uh, place of ministry was a town called Kidderminster. Kidderminster. And one of the things that people have to realize when reading a book like this is That their system in England at that time, their system of parish life, their system of church life, was not voluntarist like the American scene today. People can just go to whatever church suits them best. They can, they can go to a a Bible church. They can go to an Assemblies of God. They can go to a Calvary Chapel. They can go to a Reformed church, an OPC church. So what they do is, you move to what we do is, we move to a new city, and we. look up what churches are likely or available or are around where we're going to be living, and then people go church shopping. We even use that expression. Church shopping. In a place like Kidderminster, basically, if a reform pastor was established in the church at Kidderminster, then everybody in the town was in his parish. And what Baxter did was he catechized everybody there. And the the transformation in that Town that was due to his uh, indefatigable labors was just simply astounding. And Baxter outlines basically uh, his arguments for giving catechisms, giving a catechetical book, uh, copies of catechisms to the people, and then setting up a system. His system was to uh, set aside two days a week for the minister. To go through the catechism questions and answers with the people, instructing them one on one, preaching to them one on one. Now, I think that there are places in this book where Baxter's uh, natural severity, you might say, comes out when he's dealing with ministers who don't take up this duty, who don't take up this obligation. At the same time, you can see his spirit of grace when it comes to the elderly who can't memorize the catechism very well, and he, and he talks about how to give people like that slack, how to approach people, not, how, how to not put them off when you first um, come into their homes to drill them on their catechism questions. And it comes one of the things that comes out is that although Baxter had a hard time getting along with his theological peers, he appeared to have been singularly gifted. When it comes to uh, dealing with people who were his inferiors when it came to ecclesiastical office, he was the quintessential pastor. He was a good pastor, cared for the people, loved the people, didn't give them more than they could bear, but expected a lot from them, and was the kind of successful pastor that got them to the place where they were actually doing it. So, uh, the Reform Pastor, if you've never read it before, it's a bracing book. He's, uh, he's very pithy. He's very uh, good, very bracing. And um, take some of what he says, some of his strictures against uh, his fellow reform ministers, I think maybe a little bit too, uh, I think the shoelaces may be a little bit too tight in a few places. But there's a lot of pastoral wisdom here. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support this channel and the work of Canon Press, join up at Canon Plus. Just click the link in the show notes, create an account, and have a look around.